It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the front lines as Ukraine advances on Bakhmut, American President Joe Biden visits London, and Western allies of Ukraine disagree over the supply of cluster munitions. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 10th of July, one year and 136 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols and assistant comment editor Francis Sternley. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So we'll talk about Bakhmut in a little bit. There's been a bit more advances there for Ukraine, but let's just uh, cover over the weekend. So over the weekend, Russian air defences said they shot down two missiles, one over the Crimean Peninsula, the other over southern Russia border region of Rostov of Wagner Dash fame. And this comes from Russian officials. So the, the Russian installed governor of Crimea, Sergei Aksyonov, said a cruise missile was shot down near the city of Kerch. That's obviously in the east of the peninsula. He said no casualties or damage, no detail was given as to where the missile had been launched from. Now, traffic was briefly suspended over the Crimean Bridge and in Rostov, Governor Vasily Golubev said that air defences shot down a missile heading that way. He said no casualties reported, but debris was responsible for partly damaging a number of buildings. Elsewhere, sticking in the south of the country on Sunday, a Russian attack hit a school. Now, not operating as a school at the time, so we're in the southern Zaporizhia region here. Local governors said that a school that's been used for distributing humanitarian aid was hit. Four adults killed and a number injured. Uh, they were queuing to, as I say, pick up humanitarian aid. So this is Governor Yuri Malashko. He said that the town uh, in Orokhiv, which is down in the south, it's kind of where the Ukrainian advance has moved from there, about 10k south of there. So it's very close to the, the active line of contact. He described the attack as a war crime. This attack's not yet been verified. And there are photos so collecting on social media that show different buildings. So we're not exactly sure what has been hit. Just bear that one in mind. 
but the town of Orihov was hit and some uh, deaths and injuries there. Now, the next one, Valery Gerasimov, so, the, so Russia's top general, the chief of staff of Russia's armed forces. He's been seen for the first time since the Wagner mutiny on June the 24th. So his footage released by the Russian Defence Ministry shows him getting a briefing. He's in a command room and he sort of takes all these briefings and he gives orders to destroy Ukrainian missile sites. It's all very, uh, well, it's very staged, quite obviously. We don't know when the footage was filmed, but that's almost uh, that almost doesn't really matter. Uh, the fact they're releasing it now, this is the first confirmation as such that Gerasimov has remained in his position after the failed uh, mutiny by uh, Wagner. It seems to be this meeting... If the timing is anything to do with what Ukraine is doing, it seems to be in relation to those missile attacks, as I say, in Crimea uh, and Rostov that Russia say they thwarted. So it might be to do with that or it might just be they wanted to release this footage. Now, there's still no sign of General Sorovkin. Uh, Gerasimov did actually refer to his command, but only referred by name to Sorovkin's deputy. So we still don't know where he is. There were reports that he was arrested after the whole Wagner thing. We don't know, but he's not been seen uh, from or heard from since the bizarre that kind of almost hostage video on the day of the mutiny. So, I mean, it's looking more and more like he has been removed from post or there's some official sanction taken against him. Now, back moot, there's been continued advances there. So Hannah Malia, Kiev's deputy defence minister, uh, she said Ukrainian forces are advancing on the south of the city. She described it, said they registered a, quote, definite advance. There seems to be no change to the north. So we, at the moment, we think that the city itself is held by regular Russian reinforcements that went in there after Wagner left, including the VDV, the Russian airborne forces, although massively depleted since the start of this full-blown invasion. They are capable. So they seem to be holding the city and then the two horns, if you like, north and south, are under extreme pressure from Ukraine. And the south seem to be enlisting better results for them. So in the south, a lot of attention in recent days has focused on the village of Klishkiva. We've talked about it a few times. That's just to the southwest, a few k's, a couple of k's to the southwest of the city. General Alexander Sirsky, who's the commander of Ukraine's ground forces, he posted on Telegram that Russian troops are getting trapped in some areas near uh, Bakhmut in that area. And the British MOD said over the weekend that uh, Russia is struggling to hold on to the city. Now, talking on about Klishkiva, this is high ground to the southwest of the city. Lawrence Friedman, who's Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College here in London, he said if Ukraine can take and hold the high ground overlooking the city, the position of the occupiers would become increasingly uncomfortable. Add to that, there are some very well-connected Russian military bloggers who say Russian forces defending the flanks of the city had broken and retreated, although others are saying that Russian resistance was holding up and fighting was fierce. I think it's certainly correct to say fighting is fierce, quite as to how much is holding up, how much has been has broken, and where the exact line is, is very unsure. But it's certainly not the calm and stable place that, that the Kremlin would have us believe after Wagner took it over. Now, one of these channels, one of these Telegram channels, Rybar, posted to 1.2 million subscribers. They're talking about Klishkiva, and Rybar says over and over again, Ukrainian forces try to attack the village, but they have not been able to take the key heights. That sort of points to um, Lauren Friedman's observation about holding the high ground there. British MOD said that one reason the fighting was so fierce was that it, it is politically unacceptable, in their words, for Russia's military to retreat after Wagner took it, the whole fanfare, medals all round, 
for Russia now to lose that city would just be so... It, it only ever had symbolic value, really. It had geographic value to a certain extent, but it had much more value as symbology for Putin. So to be kicked out of there now would be a, a massive blow. So British MOD said, Russian defenders are highly likely struggling with poor morale, a mix of disparate units and a limited ability to find and strike Ukrainian artillery. Morale, yes, we've talked about that before. The mix of disparate units, we know they've got all sorts in there. Wagner's out, but the local Donetsk so-called People's Republic, they're in there. None of these units play well together. That's one of the reasons Ukraine was so successful there in applying pressure, albeit trading ground for pressure against these disparate units, which might have resulted in the Wagner immunity. We don't know, but it was certainly a soft point to keep poking. And so those disparate units, they're not working well now. And their inability to find Ukrainian artillery is just down to range because they are now further away. They can shoot and scoot better and be out of the way before the counter-battery fire comes in. More broadly, in the advance in the area, after taking a handful of villages uh, down south around the sort of Zaporizhia-Donetsk borders to the south, Ukraine seems to have reverted to relying much more on artillery, long-range precision artillery, to get rid of Russia's supply lines, headquarters, ammo dumps, that kind of thing. Lawrence Friedman again, he said that Ukraine's lack of superior air power meant that ground forces have been exposed, which we've spoken about before. So the advance is very slow because of that. And one of the ways of trying to counter that is trying to further their chances of moving successfully, i.e. getting rid of Russia's long-range artillery. So that means go for the units themselves and the supply lines and the railheads and what have you. So a slight shift possibly in in this phase of the counteroffensive but yeah, it's very early days to say with any great certainty. We're going to talk a little bit more about cluster bombs a bit later, but I will take a pause there. Francis, can I come to you? Um, President Biden is in London visiting our Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. You went down to Downing Street to have a look. What did you see? Thanks, David. Yes, I've just dashed back from a sunlit Downing Street where I watched President Biden's arrival to meet with the Prime Minister. The cavalcade was quite a sight, I have to say, coursing along Whitehall past soldiers on horseback at Horse Guards Parade, statues of British generals, the Cenotaph, of course, before swerving into the cast iron gates outside Number 10 amid shouts and applause from the press and the public. It was a flying visit under an hour, though for all the fine words, tensions, of course, simmer beneath the surface as we approach the NATO summit tomorrow and Wednesday. Whilst the UK-US relationship may be rock solid, to quote Joe Biden an hour ago, there are disagreements over whether Ukraine's accession to NATO should be fast-tracked and Washington's plan to arm Kyiv with cluster bombs. Sunak said the UK discourages the use of these weapons after the US agreed to send them to Ukraine last week. The controversy of which I know Dom is going to discuss shortly, as he just mentioned. Now, on the matter of Ukraine joining NATO, Mr. Biden last night told CNN that he thinks it is premature for NATO to discuss inviting Kyiv to join the alliance while in the middle of a war. I'll quote from him. We're determined to commit every inch of territory that is NATO territory. It's a commitment that we've all made no matter what. If the war is going on, then we're all in a war. We're at war with Russia, if that were the case. For some, it was seen as a snubbing of Rishi Sunak. But Washington is not alone. Germany is also said to be insisting on delaying Ukraine's accession to NATO over fears the move could take the alliance to war with Russia. An alliance source said Berlin would use the summit in Vilnius to urge others to focus on security assurances rather than membership proposals to help Ukraine defend itself in the absence of a session. 
A source told The Telegraph Berlin is standoffish at the prospect of offering immediate membership. It wants a process and time to develop guarantees to essentially block membership. Berlin doesn't want to see Putin potentially test Article 5. Under NATO Alliance's Article 5 clause, suffice to say, any member state attacked by an outside aggressor has the right to request military intervention from the rest of the Allies. As I discussed last week, Zelensky has conducted a grand tour of countries in an attempt to garner support before Vilnius, including Czechia, Bulgaria, Slovakia and Turkey. We now know more about the last two visits. Zelensky thanked Slovakia for its support and solidarity and in turn his Slovak counterpart said that Ukraine's future is in NATO. Bratislava has steadily supported Ukraine through humanitarian assistance and military supplies, including Soviet-made MiG-29 fighter jets. But this is still a noteworthy intervention. The bigger surprise, though, was Turkey, a country widely seen as straddling both sides in this war. President of Turkey, Erdogan, said Ukraine without doubt deserves to have NATO membership following talks with Zelensky. He also released five former Azov commanders who'd fought in the battle over Mariupol so that they could return to Ukraine. And Zelensky was then able to put out on social media, we are returning home from Turkey and bringing our heroes home. Upon news of the release, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said Russia had not been informed and that Turkey had promised to keep the former prisoners on its home soil. They're not happy, to put it mildly. And Russian commentators have demanded a tough response to what they're describing as a betrayal. And the Kremlin spokesman even called it a violation of the trust established between the two countries. So that's where we are as we approach Vilnius. In brief, a less than united alliance on certain fundamentals, I think it's fair to say, namely on whether Ukraine should be given a clear timetable for NATO membership and the nature of the next wave of military support. Washington finds itself in a curious position on these matters, more hawkish on the matters of weapons, though still uneasy about F-16s, but more anxious than others on Ukraine in NATO. Biden's decision to back Ursula von der Leyen less ideological, an EU brand candidate, has been interpreted as signalling to Putin that an off-ramp remains in place, that if Moscow wishes to negotiate, the West is open to it. Critics, though, say this is naive. Had Biden approved somebody like Wallace or Callis instead, it would have told Putin that we're in this fight for the long haul. So he'd be smarter to withdraw ASAP before he's removed from office by forces within Russia. Now, on the matter of Ukraine in NATO, it is worth remembering that had Ukraine been a member, Russia would never have invaded without risking a war with the United States and the rest of the alliance. Indeed, it was the apparent overtures being made by Ukraine about joining NATO that gave Putin the spurious justification for annexing Crimea in 2014 and everything that has followed. As with the invasion of Georgia in 2008, he has been prepared to sacrifice better relations with the West to defend what's left of Russia's post-Soviet sphere of influence. This week's meeting in Vilnius is symbolic, taking place in a Baltic state once part of the USSR. This encroachment on Russia's borders 
has been cited by the Kremlin as the rationale behind its invasion of Ukraine. I think Kyiv is entitled to treat Western caution with scepticism, as its independence was supposedly protected by the Budapest Memorandum of 1994, signed by nuclear powers, including Russia, in exchange for it giving up its atomic weapons. Had it not done so, Kyiv would have had the ultimate deterrent to a Russian invasion. They believe the signatories to the memorandum have an obligation to Ukraine, which some appear to believe extends only to supplying them with weapons to wreck Russia's army, but at great cost. Offering NATO membership does not necessarily invite the wrath of Moscow, as has been found with the accession of Finland, which has an extensive border with Russia. Thus, setting out a timetable for membership would arguably reinforce the folly of Putin's invasion and make Moscow realise the West is committed to its defeat. My own view is that showing strength now is more advisable than extending a hand. Unfortunately, the prospect of the American election next year and a potential weakening of Western support as a result is a mighty incentive for Putin to prolong this war and bed in. And since I've just seen an American president, it reminds me of the hope offered to the Confederacy in the American Civil War by the 1864 presidential election, when Lincoln contested McClellan, whose party promised an end to the war and negotiations. It kept the flame alive, yet the collapse came quickly after Lincoln's re-election and it became clear there was no way back. Though there were still vicious battles after even that point, though that was a crushing moment for many politicians in Richmond. But enough history. That's where we are in the present, David. Thanks very much, Francis. Dom, can I come back to you? Francis mentioned that you wanted to talk a little bit more about cluster munitions and some of the controversy around them. Obviously, over the weekend, there's been a lot more reaction to the decision by the US to think about supplying Ukraine with these weapons. What have you been reading? I think it's just worth us talking about it again, because the issue has moved on. It's a live news item of this war and it doesn't do us any justice if we think it's a very binary subject for or against etc etc so we need to talk about it and thrash out the arguments uh, to make our minds up for ourselves so ukraine said it's only fair that it gets uh, cluster munitions from the u.s after the criticism that's coming out over the last few days so uk spain canada as signatories to the convention banning cluster munitions all voiced uh, criticism after the announcement on Friday. So Rishi Sunak, our Prime Minister, the British Prime Minister, said on Saturday the UK is a, quote, signatory to a convention which prohibits the production or use of cluster munitions and discourages their use, unquote. So, yeah, very clear statement of the position of this country, but not absolutely coming out and disagreeing with the US, uh, the US move. For their part, President Joe Biden, CNN, said it was necessary to support Ukraine's dwindling ammunition stocks. They're controversial because of the uh, the way they are designed to cover a large area with submunitions. And as with any piece of equipment, there's a failure rate. Regular artillery shells have a failure rate. Tank rounds have a failure rate. Attempted mutineers in Russia have a failure rate. You've always got to accept that. But we need to put that in context. The thing about these things are they can stay in the ground for years, decades, and remain live, posing a great danger to civilians. Ukraine, Mikhailo Podolyak, top advisor to President Zelensky, he said it would be at least fair for Kyiv to use cluster munitions, given that Moscow, in his words, has been using this type of ammunition in Ukraine for over a year. He said it was extremely important for Ukraine to receive the weapons. They somewhat compensate for our shell deficit and partially restore parity on the battlefield. 
and actually Russia should be talked to only in a language it understands commensurate force, he said. As non-signatories to the 2008 convention, Kiev and Moscow have used cluster bombs already during this war. The US is, is not a signatory. There has been opposition over the weekend. Senator Tim Kaine, for example, said he had qualms about the use. And Representative Barbara Lee, she urged the government to, to reconsider. Also from Cambodia, a country that's still blighted by landmines left over from the Vietnam War and other conflicts. Uh, on Sunday, Hun Sen, Cambodian leader, he urged Kiev against their use, saying that, that Ukrainian citizens would be the real victims and said it would be the greatest danger for Ukrainians for many years or up to 100 years if cluster bombs are used in Russian-occupied areas of the territory of Ukraine. OK, so Ukraine have come back out. Alexei Reznikov, defence minister, he's given a number of a number of points about their use. And he said that Ukraine will only use them uh, for deoccupation of our internationally recognised territories. He said they would not be used in the officially recognised territory of Russia. He said a strict record of their use would be kept and information would be exchanged with partners uh, and cluster munitions would not be used in urban areas, only used to break through enemy defence lines. So the point about the failure rate is correct. However, there is so much ammunition that is still live, littered around Ukraine because of Russia's invasion, that if we're going to have the argument about a failure rate, you need to look at it in the round. You need to take everything into account. And so you can't just say, oh, custom munitions, bad, failure rate. That is correct, but that's not the end of the sentence. If that's the end of your sentence, then go and listen to another pod, right? So you've got to take it in the round. Also, if Ukraine are good to their word, and I have every reason to think they would do in this instance, then in the areas they're going to use them, they are already covered by unexploded ordnance. So it's not as if there's a new area that will need to be demined afterwards. And also, they know they've got to demine the place after any eventual victory. So they know the role that they are placing or the burden they're placing on their future. So at this juncture, I would point you to the Twitter feed of writer and Kiev resident James Canning Cook, who started a poll on, online on Twitter on which you can vote. He's asking, what is more dangerous to civilians when littered across Ukraine? Unexploded cluster bombs or unexploded Russian troops? Now, a little bit binary and a little bit on the nose, but essentially that's what it boils down to. But for a longer read, to really flash out these arguments, I would point you to a paper that's out today from RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute here, uh, co-authored by Jack Watling and Justin Bronk. We spoke to both of them. They're really good guys. They know what they're talking about. Uh, and they've thought about this long and hard and they've placed it in, in decent context. It's a very short paper. Go and have a look on the RUSI website now. It's called uh, Giving Ukraine Cluster Munitions is Necessary, Legal and Morally Justified. So in this, they say, I'm just going to read a couple of bits out because I think it sort of nails down the arguments that we should all be using now, the sort of currency we should be holding to uh, to have these kind of debates. They say dual purpose improved conventional munitions, DPICMs, these are the, the correct terminology for the US nature of cluster munitions. So dual purpose improved conventional munitions for 155 mil howitzers and multiple launch rocket systems greatly multiply the efficiency of artillery fire against entrenched troops. They cite as an example US data from the Vietnam War that said the number of conventional high-explosive 155 artillery rounds fired for each enemy soldier killed in combat in Vietnam was 13.6, and they say testing has shown it's 1.7 for these cluster munition shells. So they carry on. When fired against Russian defensive fortifications in Ukraine, a conventional artillery shell has a very low probability of killing Russian troops unless it lands directly in a trench, even if an HE round, so high-explosive round, 
does land in a trench, it will only spread shrapnel in the trench sector within line of sight of the point of detonation. A DPICM round, by contrast, spreads 72 submunitions over a significant area. This greatly increases the chances of multiple submunition blasts directly impacting troops in trenches, providing much greater lethal and suppression effects. So that's on the actual how many rounds you're going to be using. And so the efficiency and your chance of success in this operation. They then say with each barrel, so artillery barrel, having a life of around 1,800 rounds, after which time the, the rifling's gone inside and it's just burnt out and you can't use it again, basically. So 1,800 rounds per barrel. Giving Ukraine DPICMs will mean it has to fire fewer total rounds for a given battlefield effect, allowing it to sustain the fight for significantly longer. It also makes a large amount of currently unused munitions in the stockpiles of Ukraine's international partners available and would reduce the consumption rate of increasingly stretched conventional HE, high explosive, 155 mil stocks, buying crucial time as NATO countries struggle to expand munitions production. This is vital given Russia's current strategy of attempting to dig in and prolong the conflict, a strategy specifically designed to exhaust Western capacity to supply the armed forces of Ukraine with sufficient munitions and equipment to keep fighting. So I think there's a number of points there that that Justin Brock and Jack Watling pull out. But essentially, if you say that cluster bombs in and of themselves should never be used, then, then you won't get into these arguments. And that's a position to take. I'm not knocking that. But I think there's more nuance to it. We say we shouldn't kill each other. You shouldn't take human life. Unless it's a war in self-defence or the police force, security forces, la la la. So there's always moral carve-outs for these things. We have a speed limit on the road. You know, there'd be many more people whose lives would be saved if the speed limit was reduced to two miles an hour. But then we all go, well, come on, we've got to get where we're going. We need to live our lives. There's always a moral carve-out. I think the moral carve-out here is by the country upon whose territory these things are going to be left. And I accept there will be a failure rate. But if the country that's going to be doing that and clearing it up say we need these things and we're prepared to use them, then I think we should back them. Uh, so there's two arguments there. Go and have a look at the uh, James Canning Cook's uh, Twitter poll and, and broaden out the arguments with the paper by Rusi. But I think there is moral justification here. I think uh, beyond the moral justification, I think there's a, a necessity because the relative disparity between the number of artillery tubes Ukraine has vice Russia, I think they need to be better and more efficient with everything that comes out of those tubes. This is a way of doing that. And I think, as they point out, the long-term strategy of Russia is to kind of wait us out and just keep grinding on with uh, quantity rather than quality. And unless and until the Western external supporters of Ukraine ramp up their own uh, industrial production lines for military aid, then this is a way of bridging that gap. So yeah, a lot of morality in there, but I think there's necessity and proportionality as well. But two, two points there for you to... Go and, uh, go and have a look at it and make your own mind up. But I'm already getting already getting slammed by the trolls online. So you're not willing to actually go and have a look at the things I've said. You're just going to go, eh, I've decided up, decided, made my mind up, and uh, yeah, here we go. But So thanks for that, guys. Always appreciate it. Thank you very much, Francis. Well, can we move to both of your final thoughts, please? Francis Durney, would you like to go first? Well, thanks, David. Just a quick one from me. Listeners to Friday's episode will have heard our news that the three of us will be visiting the United States in September and our appeal to those somehow engaged in this war in a senior capacity, whether in intelligence, politics, activism or as expert commentators on international affairs to get in touch. If you missed that, I highly recommend you go back to Friday's episode as it goes into far more detail as to our plans and our ambitions, including to meet listeners. But for now, just wanted to say thank you to those of you 
who have already reached out, we will be in touch in due course and very much look forward to interacting with you. Thank you very much, Francis. Dom Nichols, you're heading off on some well-deserved rest and holidays and recuperation. What are your final thoughts? Thanks, David. It certainly will be. What I want to say uh, for a final thought is for the upcoming NATO conference. So there's reporting out in the last hour from Reuters saying that in terms of the language around any accession to NATO by Ukraine, that they might come up with something like saying that Ukraine's rightful place is in NATO, echoing Stoltenberg's remarks when he was in Kiev in April. Or they might stress the transatlantic security would be incomplete without Ukraine, this kind of language. And I, I just uh, two things on that. Firstly, I wonder if the argument is that accession by Ukraine into NATO is unrealistic now whilst they're the war on. When is post-war? If this thing freezes, or even if it doesn't, when do you draw the line and say that's it, there's post-war, there's clear blue water between war and no war, and Ukraine is safe to join, join NATO? We won't know that. And I just wonder if, actually, this is a bit of um, diplomatic brinkmanship that's going on here. Germany today has said that they will offer very substantial arms to Ukraine, but are not going to offer membership invitation during the NATO summit. That's Reuters again citing a German official. And I just wonder if this is, I mean, it's a legitimate conversation anywhere about Ukrainian membership of NATO. But I wonder if they've really pushed it ahead of this NATO summit so that all the weight of evidence has been that Nobody is realistically thinking about offering NATO membership whilst the war is still on. I wonder if Ukraine have accepted that and said, well, let's really push it. And we're not going to get that, but we'll go for the next best option, which is such as the you know, very substantial pledge of very substantial arms to Ukraine. There might be something on F-16s. There might be something on ATACMs. We've had the cluster munition announcement last week. So I just wonder if Ukraine have accepted the position on NATO membership, but have sought to use that as a diplomatic tool to to squeeze everything they can out of external donors and whether or not this has been a bit of a diplomatic, um, they pulled a blinder, basically. But we, we I don't know if we'll ever know that, but it's just a, a comment. Uh, and yes, I will see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Tomorrow, the important NATO summit in Lithuania begins, one that will see leaders within the alliance and beyond come together for vital discussions of matters of military and diplomacy. From 2014 to 2017, Sir Michael Fallon was at the heart of such events as the British Secretary of State for Defence. He was in the room when the Western response to Russia's annexation of Crimea was determined, as well as the coordinated strategy for tackling Daesh in the Middle East. To discuss his memories of that time and to assess the events that have happened since, Francis sat down with him here at The Telegraph. Here is their conversation. So, Michael, thank you very much for your time today and for coming to Telegraph Towers, a place you know well, having written for us many times over the years. The reason we've timed our interview for today is the imminent NATO summit in Lithuania. So to start, as a former British Defence Secretary, you're obviously someone intimately familiar with these kind of summits. Aside from what journalists and the general public see, what's actually happening behind closed doors and how important are they? Well, all all these summits are important because they give the chance for leaders of countries to meet and to meet very efficiently, to have bilaterals with each other. But also they're a moment in time. I attended three of them. I think the first one after the invasion of Crimea in 2014, the Warsaw Summit in 2016 and the first summit that Trump attended after he became president in 17. 
And one characteristic, I think, of the NATO summits, unlike perhaps the EU summits, is they do try and find agreement beforehand. There's an awful lot of work will have been going on in the last two or three weeks to make sure that NATO does present as a unified front. And that's all the more important now to send the right signal of reassurance to President Zelensky in Ukraine and, of course, the right signal to Putin. The alliance is still firmly committed to supporting Ukraine. So there'll be an awful lot of preparatory work. Then you go to the summit, there are opening statements, and then a whole sequence of bilaterals between the premiers, between the foreign ministers, and then between the defence ministers. And then an awful lot of side events where you discuss various things. I always reviewed, for example, the training needs of the Ukrainian army in collaboration with the other countries that were doing the most, United States, Canada, Lithuania and Poland. We had a quint and we would review regularly who was training what to make sure we weren't overlapping. And there are things like that going on in the margins, if you like, of the summit itself. But the hard work, the spade work on agreeing the actual communique and what is going to be said to the world, particularly about Ukraine, will have probably been done by this weekend before the leaders gather in Vilnius on Tuesday. And of course, the conversations about the next NATO head is ongoing. Yes, I think that has been unfortunate. In 14, at the Wales summit, we had Stoltenberg lined up to take over from Rasmussen. And I don't quite understand the arguments that have been against Ben Wallace, who's a perfectly, I think, acceptable candidate. They said he wasn't a prime minister, but none of the three British secretary generals have been prime ministers. Ismay, Carrington, George Robertson, they were defence secretaries or whatever. And also that he wasn't EU. Well, Stoltenberg is not EU. So I don't quite see why there were objections to Ben Wallace. And I think it is slightly unfortunate that the alliance can't seem to agree on a candidate in good time. But there you are. They've reappointed Stoltenberg for another year. So they'll have to return to it earlier next year. Indeed. Well, you became Defence Secretary in 2014, just weeks after the annexation of Crimea by Russia, which you alluded to a moment ago. Can you talk us through your memories of that time? Yes, it was a very difficult time. The Ukrainians, of course, came to the Wales summit. And I should emphasize that almost everybody else comes, not just members of NATO. There are a lot of people in partnership with NATO, other um, leaders from the Middle East. But the Ukrainian president and prime minister and defense minister were there with us in Wales and desperately pleading for help because the Donbass was being overrun, if you remember, not just Crimea. And they were very short of anti-tank weapons, missile shells, as indeed they still are today. And they were desperate for us to help send them arms. And that was an agonized discussion over the summer. And eventually our government, I'm afraid to say, declined, and as did the Obama government and the rest of NATO. And we did not send them uh, the weapons that they needed, which was why, actually, we started the training program the following year. And I sent the British Army in to start training the Ukrainian army, as that was one obvious way of helping them on the battlefield. And that training, of course, continues to this day. So what was the mood in Europe at that moment about standing up to Russia? I'm assuming that that played into the decision not to send weapons. Well, the mood wasn't good. The sanctions were applied, but of course, they were somewhat half-hearted. They didn't include oil and gas. They didn't include, crucially, existing contracts. So it was still possible for those who'd contracted to sell even weapons to Russia to go on doing so. 
And clearly the heart of the American administration wasn't in it. And we too were a coalition government. And I don't think it's any secret that there were divisions in our coalition government about how far we should go in arming the Ukrainians. And that, I think, was a mistake. I think if we'd sent a sharper, tougher signal to Putin then, if we had supplied the basic defensive weapons, I think Ukraine might have had a better chance. The argument against was was said to me in the cabinet that, well, we didn't want to provoke the Russians, but they were already there. They didn't need provoking. They were already in Crimea. They were in Donbass. And it's one of those what ifs. But I think it was disappointing that in the end, NATO wasn't tough enough then. And I think we've seen the fruits of that a year and a half ago, where Putin clearly thought he could get away with it all over again. Did you get a sense then that people thought he would stop there? that there was no inkling that he would try and take the rest of Ukraine, that this was as far as he would go? I don't think we then thought he would try and take the whole of Ukraine, but of course we'd already seen him invade Georgia. We'd already seen a malevolence in breaching a whole series of international treaties and conventions that Russia had signed up to, including the sovereignty of Ukraine. So um, no, this was somebody clearly who couldn't be trusted any further. And I think it's more obvious now with hindsight that we should have drawn a line then. But to do that, you need to do it as an alliance. And Obama's heart wasn't in it. And we were, not in mitigation, but we were also confronted with this sudden emergence of Daesh in Iraq and Syria. And our attention perhaps was getting drawn to dealing with that as well. Well, we'll come to that in a moment. But just staying with Europe first, in 2017, you warned that the exercises Russia were conducting in Belarus and in Kaliningrad were designed to provoke us. Obviously, Belarus has become increasingly important over the duration of this war, not least in the last few weeks. What are your reflections on that country? We have to regard that country, you know, as much more than a satellite. It is virtually part of Russia now, and it is part of the Russian front line against NATO. And that's why we need, I hope, the leaders at the NATO summit, I think they hope they will now look again at reinforcing that eastern frontier of NATO, particularly the three Baltic states and Poland. At the moment, there's a very light defence in each of them, something of a tripwire, and I think it now needs to be beefed up because there's no doubt at all that if Russia does want to carry out further incursions, they will simply do it through Belarus and on the way to Kaliningrad. And there is a famous well-known military gap there, as you know, the Kowalski Gap, which is very vulnerable. Do you think Ukraine should join NATO at the fastest possible opportunity? Absolutely. And I think what Ukraine will be looking for next week is a clear and straightforward path to membership, that there isn't going to be a long further approvals process, that it's done everything to demonstrate already by the sacrifices they've made that they are there to defend the values that NATO believes in. So I hope that that approval will be given in principle and it will be very clear to everybody that Ukraine is going to join NATO and NATO will look further as to what can be done to make sure that when Ukraine does join NATO that its defence is absolutely secure. You referenced the lack of commitment from the Obama administration in 2014. Obviously, the United States has proved vital in this full-scale invasion. But where would you summarise their position at this moment? 
The United States has been more generous than anybody. And whatever criticisms I had of the Obama administration nine years ago, they have been absolutely leading the West, as traditionally the United States has done, by far and away the biggest uh, supplier to the Ukraine, both of military aid and of financial help. And if it hadn't been for the United States, there's no doubt at all that Ukraine would be in a far worse position. But the alliance has to step up. We can't always rely or worry what is likely to happen in Washington and the next election or whatever. It is the European members of NATO who need to step up now. They need to be supplying more weapons to Ukraine, defensive weapons, better air support, shells and missiles, all the stuff that the Ukrainians still desperately need. And they need to be sure that the arms manufacturers in Europe are stepping up. How do you explain the hesitancy amongst certain European powers not to become strategically independent of the United States? Well, I suppose historically there have been reasons for a slightly different approach in Germany. And there is a historical stream, perhaps, of anti-Americanism that we shouldn't always be doing what America is doing. But I'm very heartened by the support that Ukraine has had from countries like Italy, for example, and from Poland and from Romania. Those countries have really stepped up now because they can see the danger. If we don't draw the line this time, then Moldova could be next, then Georgia, and who knows what after that. You mentioned the Middle East as another pivotal place during your time as Defence Secretary Looking back, obviously, since then, we've had the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. But of course, your time saw, as you say, the rise of Daesh and and other threats. How would you summarise your period in office regarding the Middle East and the West's relationship with that part of the world now? Well, it was an extraordinary period because we had to get everybody to go back into the Middle East all over again, having already been there twice. But this time, dealing with Daesh, we did at least, I think, do it differently. And I think we did it better because what we did do was not put troops onto the ground. We helped to equip and to train and to give air support. But the fighting itself, of course, was done by a revitalized Iraqi army, by the Peshmerga in the north, by the Iraqi army in the south with an awful lot of support from the West. And within three years, we had essentially cleared most of Daesh out of Iraq and then out of Syria, although Syria was a much more complicated situation. So it was a very different operation to the earlier operations in Iraq and Afghanistan in that uh, we were having Iraqi troops winning the hearts and minds, if you like, liberating their own country, which I think, you know, is a lesson really for the West, that if you're going to uh, fight terrorism on the ground. It has to be done by your own fighters. And today, how do you think the West has been dealing with the Middle East in recent months? Well, my fear is the West is slightly losing interest in the Middle East, of course, because of what has happened on our own continent in Ukraine and because of the rise and importance of Indo-Pacific and our concerns about China and Taiwan. But the Middle East is still strategically extremely important. It straddles, of course, the seaways, the cable routes between east and and west. And Britain and the rest of the West have a lot of friends in the Middle East. There are a lot of historical ties there. The uh, Crown Prince of Bahrain was here this week with a trade mission. There is an awful lot of interlocking commercial and financial relationships with all those countries in the Gulf. And there's a very strong relationship between our militaries. So it's important that we don't lose focus on the Middle East. And there are big worry points there, not simply the 
ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas in Palestine, but also, of course, what to do about Iraq and what kind of reassurance. And if we don't step up and help deal with that, then there are others who will, not least, of course, China. And we see more and more Chinese involvement commercially, politically, diplomatically, and even military involvement in the Middle East. Well, that was going to be my next question. Country, of course, China interpreted in a multitude of ways. How do you see them? Well, I see them, I suppose, like everybody else. They're now a huge power that we simply can't ignore, that we have to try and deal with. And I'm heartened that we've toughened our approach on national security and the legislation about protecting our technology and our vital interests. It was important that was done. But we do still have to trade with China. There's no, no way around that. And we do need China to understand that it may sooner or later be in China's own interest to respect international agreements as they develop their military, as they do have ambitions in Africa and the Middle East, they too will need the framework of international law that we've all wanted to support. And we have to persuade China that they have a self-interest, if you like, in supporting the international framework. So you don't think we should take a hard line and cut ties, as some people have posited, that we need to work with them to help them change? I think that we need to work with them, certainly. I think the real difficulty is China isn't really bothered what we think anymore. China is getting on and doing its thing. And we'll see where Washington has withdrawn. We'll see opportunity in the Middle East, as it's already done in Africa and in Pakistan. So I don't think we can suddenly hide under the blankets about China. We have to step up. We have to engage with them. But we have to be very sure we are protecting our vital interest. I often find myself interviewing distinguished guests such as yourself only to discover that they read history. You read classics and ancient history at the University of St Andrews. What lessons from history were on your mind when you were in your role as Defence Secretary? Well, it was certainly extraordinary dealing with Iraq and Syria to be dealing with almost exactly the same places that Alexander the Great had marched his army through, that Roman legions had tramped through, and that indeed comprised some of the same issues. How far eastward should the West go? How far should their influence stretch? And having got that influence, how do you maintain it? So some of those same issues certainly came to the fore, and particularly in Mesopotamia, where, of course, ancient history almost started, if you like, So um, there was uh, a lot of working out which that particular battle site was and what the modern name for it in Iraq was and so on. And we tried to take care, of course, not to damage some of the great cultural legacies, which, of course, Daesh had done. And indeed... Palmyra. uh, Palmyra. They'd blown stuff up, as indeed the Taliban had done in Afghanistan, which was tragic. And there is now quite a lot of work going on to help restore the museums that were damaged and some of the archaeological sites that were damaged. But all of it was a reminder that we'd been here before, that armies have marched across these particular deserts. And I suppose in the end, you're drawn back to um, you know, these issues of who decides borders. Is it religion? Is it rivers? Is it you know, the need for people to have more space? You never cease, I think, to be an ancient historian. And one last thing on that. Did you ever feel frustrated as one of the few historians in the room at the decisions that were being made by perhaps some of your counterparts? Or would you, were you impressed generally with the historical understanding that would shape decisions? Uh, No, these decisions aren't always taken by historians. They're taken by people who've read politics and economics, and that's not a criticism necessarily of the then uh, prime minister. 
But I think historical perspective, I think, is a very good thing for any cabinet minister to have and that knowledge that you've been there before. I remember being in the cabinet room, I think, at a meeting of the National Security Council on the exact 100th anniversary of the day that Sykes went in to see Asquith to discuss the Sykes-Pico line, which, of course, was the key determining line after the First World War, from which many of these border problems later arose. And a 100 years on, there we were, still in Mesopotamia, still arguing about where the exact border line should fall. Extraordinary. Well, finally, is there anything that we haven't discussed, something that's on your radar that perhaps should be on ours that you'd like to end with? No, I think we've discussed the summit. I really hope the summit will be positive and will give the reassurance that Ukraine wants and will remind Putin that we are going to help Ukraine for as long as it takes. And if that means more expense, yes, it certainly does. And if we spent more on defence in the first place, perhaps we wouldn't be in this position that we're in now. Well said. Well, thank you very much, Sir Michael, for your time. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces, Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. If you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter and Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.